When the Veterans Affairs Inspector General released a report detailing bad conditions at the D.C. Medical Center, the center director, Brian Hawkins, was fired. Long story short, he'll be reinstated with back pay two years later. With how this came to pass, Isaac Arnsdorf, a reporter with the nonprofit ProPublica. Isaac, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. Tell us, what is the precise status of the Hawkins case right now? Right now, the parties are are negotiating what's going to happen. Hawkins was suing the VA uh, for essentially wrongful termination. And now that the VA has agreed to reinstate him, the government's position is basically that that the case is moot. So um, they, the, the government and Hawkins attorneys are uh, talking about how they want to proceed and they're going to have to get back to the judge on that. Sure. So the merits of whether Hawkins was responsible for these terrible conditions in parts of the hospital, that never really will be aired, I guess, therefore. Well, well, frankly, that, you know, that wasn't at issue in the litigation. It also technically wasn't at issue in Hawkins' termination. Um, what, you know, one of the issues here is that the, uh, the charges that the VA brought him up on to fire him were largely unrelated to uh, the conditions at the, at the Washington Hospital that were detailed in that Inspector General's report. And uh, part of the argument that his lawyers were bringing in this case was that, um, you know, uh, if, if you want to fire him for that report, fine, you have to do an investigation, you have to make an uh, appropriate, make a punishment that's appropriate based on the evidence at hand, but based on the uh, political influence um, that was apparently going on in his case, uh, it, it starts to look like the firing was really more pretextual or something that was motivated by a political objective that political appointees at the VA wanted to reach rather than based on the evidence. Well, the firing also came after a new law giving much more latitude in, the, in how VA senior executives were fired. So in some sense, this was a test case of that law? Right. Well, that's what the law was supposed to do. And it was really, it was the administration that was holding this up as the test case. So when they tried to fire Hawkins the first time was before the law had taken effect. And that got held up on appeal. So then they came back and said, this is, you know, this is exactly why we need the new law. And now that we have the new law, we're going to use it to fire him for good. And guess what? Two years later, that didn't work out either. And why is the VA not then defending the law or, or the firing under that law? So we don't know exactly. The Justice Department, on behalf of the VA, hasn't said exactly why they decided that it was better to reinstate him rather than fight this in litigation. Um, you know, there are sort of two possibilities. It could be because of the facts or because of the law. Now, there's an, there's an old saying that bad facts make bad law. So maybe it's the combination here um, that really made the government lawyers nervous. But in terms of the facts, my reporting uncovered that there, there was essentially an email from a career official at the VA um, who was warning the political appointees that they were not following the legal process in firing Hawkins and that if they insisted on doing it anyway, they were going to lose on appeal. So that's the kind of email that uh, you really, really don't want to have <laughs> uh, if you're litigating to try to defend the action. So, so that's one possibility for, um, 
for what DOJ was looking at in terms of, you know what, this, um, this is not uh, looking like a, a really solid case for, for us. Um, the other possibility, um, in turning to legal questions, is um, Hawkins' lawyers were uh, raising constitutional arguments about how the, the VA's interpretation of this new statute um, violated due process because it, the VA was, was applying it in a way that used a lower standard of evidence um, than has typically been used when it comes to firing civil servants who obviously have certain legal protections. And so another possibility, again, maybe in combination with the, uh, with the facts at hand, was that the, the, the government was unsure about defending the law against that constitutional challenge. And, and that could have uh, very sweeping consequences because there were thousands, literally thousands, of other VA employees who have been fired under that same interpretation. So if what's happening here is that the VA won't defend the uh, the legal process by which they fired Hawkins, it could cast some doubt on those thousands of other cases that were done the same way. Sure. We're speaking with Isaac Arnsdorf, a reporter with ProPublica. So in some ways it was a Title V test because it's under Title V that the precedent for the constitutional right to the job, I think, falls to federal employees. Well, it's a contrast with Title V because the, the new law is under Title 38, which is the VA-specific um, part of the U.S. Code. So Hawkins so, was part so of the medical. He was part of the medical staff, in other words, which come under 38, as a, as opposed to. Well, he, he's not a doc, he's not a doctor, but part of what the new law did was move all VA employees over to Title 38 for the purposes of of, of basically saying, you know, the law is going to treat VA employees differently than all other civil servants because of these allegations about um, the VA bureaucracy and wanting the and and. Uh, the president's campaign promised to to make it easier to fire VA employees, that they were going to change the protections for civil servants at the VA, um, treat them differently, make it faster, have a lower standard of evidence to fire them uh, relative to other uh, employees across the government under Title V. But the president has and other Republicans have been explicit that they see they see this as a model. They eventually want the entire civil service to look more like they made the VA uh, rather than the more traditional robust protections for civil servants. Now, under Title 38, which was created for medical staff, isn't there a requirement of a peer review of evidence, say, in a medical botching or something? before someone can be let go. Did any of that sort of thing happen for Hawkins, do we know? I'm not, I'm not familiar with, with that provision just because uh, it wasn't an, an issue in this case. I mean, Hawkins, again, is not a doctor and sure. um, it was not a, uh, you know, this wasn't a question of, of, of something that happened in the operating room. It was his leadership right. as, as head of the hospital. Yeah, and uh, with respect to the emails coming from the career staff to the political staff that are overseeing all of this, did they come out through discovery or did they come out just because the Justice Department saw them on its own side and decided, hmm, maybe we better not proceed? 
I found those through my own reporting. A lot of the litigation is under seal because the government considers some of the information to be protected by attorney-client privilege. So based on what's on the public docket, there are some references that make it look like that's some of what's going on behind the seal. Um, but but I got that email myself and, and uh, reported that. And while they negotiate the terms, is Hawkins on the job or is he at home or what's his personal status? He won't be going back to being the director of the of the medical center because that that job has been filled, um, but he has to be given in an equivalent position. And um, there, under the agreement, there's nothing that precludes the agency from trying to fire him yet again. So that would be the the third attempt if they wanted to do that. Well, that's all, I guess, to come in the future. Isaac Arnsdorf is a reporter for the nonprofit ProPublica. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hear the Federal Drive on demand and on your device. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.